From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is the Chancellor's Report, featuring Mark Monet, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And here's your host, WUWM Content Manager, Ellie Ellis. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the UWM Chances Report here on WUWM 89.7, Milwaukee's NPR. My name is Ellie Ellis, and I'm here today with UWM Chancellor Mark Money. Hi, Mark. Hey, Ellie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks. Excellent. I'm so glad to be speaking with you today. Some weeks we have a bunch of people with us, but today it's just you and me. And we're here to talk about the challenges and opportunities in higher education. In the last few years, the attitudes and perceptions about uh, higher education have changed a bit. And uh, I thought we'd discuss that. Ellie, I'm really glad to just be with you today because these topics are so meaty. Uh, I think they really need for us to dig in and and, uh, talk about some of the critically important landscape issues, perceptions, attitudes, and frankly, some of the the misperceptions that are out there. Uh, And anything I can do to try to add clarity is going to be wonderful. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. That's excellent. Me too. Well, let's just jump right in. Uh, my first question for you is public perception of higher education has had a marked shift uh, with many questioning the value of a degree. So I'm wondering, why is college so expensive? Well, college is expensive for a few key reasons. But let me just first acknowledge the, the first part of your question where you said people are questioning the value of a degree. Absolutely. I saw a headline yesterday that employers, um, because of the labor shortages, are looking more at competencies and, and, and wondering, do they need the whole degree? Um, So this is increasingly happening. um, And I think a big part of that also is the cost and and ultimately what happens in terms of the returns on on that investment or or cost uh, that people have to put forward. But the reasons why it's expensive really come down to, number one, disinvestments in public education by state governments. We've seen this in uh, almost every single state across the country over the last several decades. I can tell you that in 1980, the state of Wisconsin funded, in terms of the operating budget, almost half of the uh, UW system campuses' budgets. And today, that number is closer to 18%. So um, during the early 2000s, um, you saw tuition increases to help make up for some of those cuts. And, and that's pretty much happened across the country. So, so that's a big driver. Um, part of the reason for that is sometimes there's private interest. There's been some individuals who have really um, questioned the need for uh, education as a as a public good, uh, that's that's kind of problematic. We expect all of our children um, to go through K twelve, um, and there's state budgets that are um, mandated to require K twelve funding. But when we don't have that at a two or four year degree level, um, it's discretionary funding from a state budget, and it's subject to unfortunately, a lot of pressures. uh, And those are what we're seeing drive up the cost of of tuition. So um, higher education is is, uh, a punching bag for that. uh, But oftentimes, it's because we just haven't had that investment from the state. A second factor is how long it takes you to get a degree. We know that in urban environments like Milwaukee, um, there's a lot of off-ramps and on-ramps. In fact, rarely today across the country do we see students starting at uh, an institution, and this is true of two and four-year higher ed institutions, it's very rare to see somebody start and finish two or four years later from that same institution. Now, that's almost heresy compared to when maybe uh, I was in college or others that that was more traditional, Um, but I can tell you that's the case today. A lot of non-traditional students, a lot of first-gen, a lot of individuals who are experiencing life 
Um, and so that's why UWM has an average undergraduate age of 25.5 or 25.6. So if you think about that, we really have um, a lot of students who have life um, on and off ramps. They work, they step out for you know childbirth or family home repairs or any number of things, job loss, job change, and it just it just cycles up. So that increases when you have time to degree. Um, you know that that can increase costs. People come back, they change majors. Um, credits don't always transfer from 10, 12 years ago. And then the third factor in terms of cost is really the increased infrastructure and cost associated with technology and some of the other um, issues that that happen as we seek to continue to provide um, state-of-the-art, up-to-date educational facilities. And we're not nearly <laughs> as modern as we'd like to be, which is, you know, we've been teaching chemistry in an antiquated building uh, that was at significant risk. So we're getting a new chemistry building and, and, you know, other examples like that abound. So those are the factors behind that. Do you think the pandemic changed uh, those technology issues and for the good or the bad? You know, I think that the technology issues with pandemic have actually been net, net good. Um, we've opened up the door to to a lot of new uh, technologies. I've had meetings, national meetings today uh, that I would have otherwise had to have flown to or otherwise would have had to have had, you know, a wonky conference call or something like that, that we can be together, so to speak, um, face-to-face, again, with people in New York, L.A., Dallas. It's It's just... It's great. Educationally, our students have made that leap. And of course, you got to recognize students today are so much more tech savvy than they've ever been. So generally speaking, technology has been good, but there are some there are some deficits. And we see that again back to the urban environment where we have the so-called technology divide, um, where you have a lot of schools, K-12 and neighborhoods where you don't have as good an access. You see that in the rural environments too, where where wireless is not as abundant as it is in the cities. Uh, But unfortunately, you've got a lot of household income um, situations where you simply don't have as many um, technology points of connection. Maybe one computer is shared across three or five family members and that, you know, just, just again, it's resource issues around technology that, that we need to have uh, more widespread. But overall, I think it's been a very good thing uh, while acknowledging there's been some deficits because learning occurs best in social environments. I don't care if that's K-12 or the 18 to 25 year old, more traditional age college student where, you know, learning occurs pretty, pretty well in social environments. And, and so independent learning can be a challenge for some. Do you think that's true for everyone, though? I mean, what about the students who say that it was better for them to not be with all those other students kind of in their way? I think there's there's no one best size. I think for some students, to your point, um, it's 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 better to be with others. And it partially depends on the, the topic as well um, and, sure. and the need for, uh, you know, teacher aids, assistance, graduate teaching, you know, people who can help tutor, mentor uh, for some subjects, um, which may be, you know, easier in person, not necessarily. Um, But there's different learning styles for sure. And we see that in in especially younger uh, students where attention issues uh, come into play and it's really hard. I just feel so bad for families and parents with their kids um, really struggling oftentimes at younger ages to to be focused and pay attention. Um, So in college, uh, same thing, you know, different learning styles, different needs. Um, but I can tell you before the pandemic, we were trending dramatically. We're the leading campus in the state of Wisconsin in terms of 
um, remote learners in terms of yeah. online degree participants significantly more uh, than any other campus. And so we had been pretty good and had a number of of widely, highly, highly acclaimed educational programs online, and that made it easier for us. And and so I think I think that's our future, though I really do. But there's costs associated with that, um, as well as increased access. So so you get both, you know. Yeah, yeah. College debt is staggering, and it's even more staggering for uh, those with fewer resources. You were talking about that a minute ago. Why would anyone want to take on that kind of debt when they can go out and get a $40,000 a year job right out of high school? Well, let me first acknowledge that $40,000 coming right out of high school probably sounds pretty good. Um, no debt, and boy, I can, with some of those jobs, get benefits, and 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 that's pretty nice at 19, 20 years old. But uh, I think the reality is when you want to have a family, when you want to settle down, buy a house, um, car, um, and, and, and life's, life's um, uh, things, <laughs> you know, $40,000 is, is not going to do a lot for a family. It's not going to do a lot for, for standard of living. So, so I think, you know, there's a short-term, long-term trade-off. So the answer in, on the one hand is, yeah, I see that temptation. Why take on debt um, when I, I have the, the, the bird in the hand? On the other hand, now look at degrees in education income, and I you just look at U.S. Census data. The latest data show, and this is as in the last month. What I can tell you is that lifetime earnings for high school graduates is just a notch over forty thousand dollars, and for for any average four year degree, it's literally twice that. It's eighty eighty one thousand dollars. So multiply that forty thousand dollars over a thirty year career, and you've got a delta or a change of 1.2 million. If you say a 40 year career, it's 1.6 million. So, so the, the earnings are significantly different with a degree. Now, if you jack that up to a master's degree, the Delta becomes um, closer to a hundred thousand for the average master's degree. And that's substantial again, compared to the $40,000 a year high school graduate. So it's about master's degrees are 98,000 on average. So the economic value of a degree is indisputable. I mean, this is the actual evidence. And so if you take on some debt to get there, well, you have a much greater likelihood of paying that back. And in the big scheme of things, it's an incredible investment to make compared to something that depreciates. If I were to buy a $30,000 car, um, which depreciates in five or eight years, it's not worth a whole lot, but that investment actually adds value over time on the education front. So, so I think that's really, really important um, to, to think about in terms of why individuals should take that on. And that doesn't begin to speak to the societal value of educated individuals, the role of education in democracy. The people vote more. They participate in civic volunteerism. They give more to charities. They pay more taxes. All of those things that that are so important. Um, so, so that's that's I think the 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 fast straight up response to why should I go to college. What do you say to a high school student or let's say their parent or guardians who say college just isn't the best choice for them? Well, let's talk about the pandemic and who came out of the pandemic with higher employment. Um, you know, it's pretty incredible how many people lost their jobs, but how many hung on to them during uh, the, the pandemic and, and how many today have better jobs. So point number one, much stronger employability, you know, year round in and out of good and strong economies. We know that economic cycles occur, recessions come, they go, um, boom times happen. You have more options with a degree. That's number one. 
I think that that um, you know consistency of having choices about employment opportunities is something that a degree gives you. Um, you know, I look at my own experience. I had not planned on going to college. I was a chef and food and beverage director, and I couldn't go any higher in the company that I was working for without a degree. This was in the 1970s. I thought it was kind of crazy. I thought, my goodness, you know, a lot of college students are employed in my hotel or restaurant operations. And I, I just didn't, you know, see myself having to go down that path. Um, you know, non-traditional, nobody, you know, first gen, nobody had gone to college in my family. And, and so that requirement put me into a path that when I got through with my degree and the employment opportunities that I had were so incredible, it was amazing. Now, now um, I continued uh, with education, but at every stage, more opportunities, more options. So that's what I tell parents. Um, and then if you want to talk about what does that translate into in terms of home ownership, which is kind of the American dream, if we want to talk about um, divorce rates, higher education, less divorce rates, um, talk about lifelong health and, um, you know, access to, to so many things that, that, that you have with education. I want to just <clears throat> elaborate, if I can, a little bit, Ellie, on that point. When I think about um, the, the realities of life, and I'm going to bring it home in terms of, of something, I'll give away my, my punchline and talk about life expectancy. We did a little quick study on two zip codes in this area. We looked at 53217 and we looked at 53206. And we looked at the education levels, and we see that in 53206, just a little bit shy of 22% of individuals have a bachelor's degree or higher. In the 53217 zip code, the education is about 76% with a bachelor's or higher. So you're more than three times higher uh, education, bachelor's degree in 17 versus 06. The median household income in in uh, five three two oh six is about twenty two and a half thousand dollars, and it's almost ninety eight thousand in the five three two one seven. Poverty rate in five three two oh six is about fifty percent, and it's less than five percent in five three two one seven. But here's the zinger, and no surprise, life expectancy is a full twelve years difference uh, in those two different zip codes. So does that bring it all home? It really hits me between the eyes about a moral imperative for me to continue to do what I do, which is to try to open the doors to more people having degrees than otherwise exist. I think it's the path to income, stability, home ownership, so many great things, and it's attainable. It is absolutely attainable, and I, I make a strong case here for education as a public good because of the societal values as well as individual, family, and uh, communities. So there's a part of the population that does things like universities are elitist and they have entrenched liberal biases um, in order to indoctrinate students toward those liberal biases. What do you say when somebody says that? You know, I hear that and I I just I I, I just I have to grit my teeth. You can maybe hear that through the radio here that um, I I, you know, I'm just chagrined about that simply because at UWM. And I think, frankly, at a lot of academic institutions, we're very much uh, teaching critical thinking. We want individuals to take ideas from all different perspectives, uh, because if at a university, we cannot listen to speakers from the right, speakers from the left. And if we can't have students educated to think critically, to dissect arguments, to understand the substantive merits, where can we in society, given how polarized things are? But to charge that that we're elitist and that we um, under 
mine or, or you know, the, there was the brainwashing or a woke agenda. I, I just don't see that. And this is from a guy who had never been in higher ed, who's in it today. And I look at 98% of our faculty and staff and, and, and you know, uh, same thing with our students that are just head down working every day, day in, day out, improving individuals' lives through research, through their teaching and education, through their giving into the community. So many of our students who serve in so many incredible roles in this community as nursing um, uh, interns, as, as teachers and artists and all the different things that, that that are happening in terms of, you know, the people who go on to become the historians like John Gerda, who's, an, who's a graduate, or people who go on to, to become CEOs. Our, our, our alumni become the CEOs of Northwestern Mutual, Harley-Davidson, Rockwell, go down the line, um, the Blood Center, um, Versity, um, you know, just go through all these different areas and you see the contributions and the value as well as having 205,000 alumni that fill the ranks um, so to, to, you know, and, and many of them are, 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 let's just say on the right, as well as the left, they, they really are all, all uh, types of, of stripes. But I think about on our campus, we've had on the left speakers such as Hillary and Bernie who came in and, 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 and had a debate. We uh, have Tammy Baldwin who comes a great supporter of our fresh, fresh water school, Congresswoman Gwen Moore on the right. We've had routinely Ron Johnson, Donald Trump. Milo Yiannopoulos, we have individuals from, from both sides that are really sharing their perspectives and students can turn out and evaluate. And so I think it's 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 absolutely uh, critical to, that, that we have that type of debate. Um, and the related the related aspect of that, um, well, I'll hold off. I just want to stick with, with, with that particular question. Okay. Um, why do you think higher education has become so political, though? Well, I think that the it's the nature of the beast to some extent, because you have, as I mentioned earlier, this concept of uh, discretionary funding, and you have some individuals who who have been prominent in terms of funding uh, this movement um, to take funding away from from questioning the value of degrees, and, and there has become, you know, a, 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 a microcosm of on our campuses today the way politics uh, have played out. I think you have some individuals who would say, well, let's take any given state. Let's say 30% of the population has a degree, two-year or four-year. I've had a legislator say to me, you know, in my county, um, 30% of the folks have degrees, 70% don't. Why should those 70% subsidize the 30%? You know, why should they, why should they support that? And that's a political issue because this legislator is a policymaker and he's basically um, in charge of a lot of the budgeting decisions that are made that affect public higher education. And my argument or counter to that question is really at the core of this, this issue in terms of the politics of higher ed, the, the, the need for the arguments for and, and opposed to higher education. Think about the road that you drove on. Think about the building that you're in right now. Think about the car that you're driving. If you're in a car, think about the hospital that you go to, the education that your kids or yourself are, are um, you know, a, a, a beneficiary of. Um, think about nurses, accountants, engineers, architects, all these different roles that society needs for us to have those things, for us to have companies that can out-innovate others, to be competitive against China 
um, Eastern Europe and, and other countries, we need to be leading in research. We need to be, um, when we think about my mom and dad in a nursing home, or we think about my children in a healthcare environment or education, I want well-educated nurses. I want people who are qualified to be teachers. I want all of those things. And if I don't subsidize that, if, if the state doesn't support that, then we're a lot worse off as a society. We're absolutely a lot worse off as individuals from an income and quality of life perspective. And frankly, um, you know, I think about the relationship between democracy and, and you know, as civil society, education is a major, major factor. So those things are all political. These things all become, fall, you know, they fall into those, those uh, different areas. And I think that's where we have to continue to focus on the, the not just the, the facts and figures that I've shared, you know, the life expectancy, the income, uh, but really talk about hearts and minds. It's, it's what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want to coexist? Do we want to get along? Do we want to have um, wonderful relations with folks who, who appreciate and can have civil discourse? Or frankly, do we want to have anarchy? Do we want to have folks who are closed-minded only listen to others uh, in their own sphere. And I say this with equal fingers pointed at the left and the right. It's not, it's not one is better or worse. I think we have to find and expand that middle ground. And that's what I think we can do in education to bring the political gulfs together to create um, civil conversations, to create discourse and engagement uh, in, in those ways. And that's what we try to model and uphold at UWM and will continue to always do that. First Amendment, yes, but that's just a starting point. It's really the values, it's really the ideals and the aspirations for us to have a better society through free speech, through being really non-political or let's say bipartisan as we approach uh, any particular issue. So, you know, it's kind of been the case for a long time that there are high paid professional athletes out there and we are in a sports city, but and entertainers, too. But now we have all these entrepreneurs and social media influencers that get all this acclaim for being on Twitter or being on Instagram or whatever. How do you convince a college naysayer that they can make their mark through earning a degree rather than just turning on their cell phone? Yeah, that's that's. That's the social media influence, isn't it? You know, or individuals, the, the, you know, we see those outliers. We see that, that star athlete, or we see that influencer, or we see that, that exception to the rules. Um, I have to say first, first off, you know, that's not the norm. And, and, and those individuals, not, not many of us are going to go on and have the, the athletic life or that, that type of Cinderella story. Um, talk to, talk to actors and actresses who make it in Hollywood, and they'll tell you they're one in a one in a hundred thousand. You know the folks who really get the roles. There's a lot of starving artists out there. There's a lot of starving actors. There's a lot of people who 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 haven't done that. So I think from a reliability, consistency, um, and and if you want to, if you really want to bank on where to put time and effort, I, I I think your best investment, hands down, is is around education. And I say that you know I've I've said this in a number of times in this interview already. Uh, but I think about when you have a degree, um, let's just talk about research for a moment and think about how individuals can can apply, um, you know, the, the, the understanding and knowledge that they've learned to improve health care. We have a nurse who went through our innovation and entrepreneurship programs 
and she is designing um, a way to to have instead of in a in a nursing environment instead of having six, eight, twelve different um, uh, um, tubes going in and out of an individual, and every time they move, that everything gets all hung up, and somebody wants to go to the bathroom from their hospital bed, and it's just you know it's a nightmare. So she's designed a, a, a mechanism and a way to have these tubes all consolidated in a flexible, adaptable way that nurses can use routinely. And this is going to be this little cool rocket ship of an idea. But here's the intersection of students that are getting nursing degrees, but they're also having practical research-oriented applications to improving lives. And I can give you dozens and dozens and dozens of examples every year just in nursing and healthcare alone where our students are making lives better for individuals. But I think about not just what they do for the world, but but what happens in their communities, what happens in their homes in terms of all those different areas, the the, the leadership, the skill, the discipline, um, the, the ability to think critically, to write, um, all of that. And I mentioned already stronger tax bases, less reliance on government services. Who doesn't want that? Um, you know, what about career aspirations, the doors that are open that we've all seen through through individuals having degrees? Um, so, so I think these are these are the things that counter the Cinderella stories. They counter those outliers, and they just like most of us is the bread and butter. Um, and and so I think that's that's what I would look at. And I guess I'd, I'd I'd wrap that question up by saying, tell me something that is more important for yourself as an individual, for families and community prosperity, than how individuals achieve an education and then what their options are in life. So, so the employment opportunities. So this, these twin pillars, you've probably heard me hear that say this, I, I, I just continue to, to preach this idea of, of when we look at Milwaukee and we work with Nancy Hernandez at the Hispanic collaborative or individuals. And, and we look at the uh, black wellness indicators in our community. And we look at populations that are, overemployed at income levels less than $40,000. We see these swaths, these sectors of individuals in our communities of color where we don't have the education opportunities and the employment opportunities that have really made a big difference for other communities. So that sense of equity lens is so vitally important for us to, to bring together um, the, the, the differences, the, the, the equity approach um, to make a difference through education and income, we can open those doors. We can do that if we can really get behind this more profoundly um, as educators and society working together. Excellent. Well, we've got just about one minute left, really just one minute. And I just want to ask you, what is the coolest thing you've done in the past month? Oh, my goodness. That's a gear shift. <laughs> Here I was expecting another hardball. Um, so cool things have been uh, happening here. You know, I have been excited to be able to ride my bike uh, into the fall, pretty deep into the fall, because we've had this warmer weather. So that's obviously cool in more ways than one, as it has been as has been uh, kind of cool out. Uh, I've been reading some fun books, um, The Last Flight. Um, an, an interesting one that I've been thinking a lot about is that play in the fields of the Lord. Um, that's good. And then uh, my good friend and colleague, Helene, uh, gave me Hamnet which is a wonderful uh, story, although uh, all, not all positive, kind of deep and heavy, but but a wonderful book. Uh, and then, of course, continuing to do the great cooking. My kids are both, one's a vegan, one's a vegetarian. So 
new worlds always abound in the culinary front uh, of things. So those are some fun things. Well, thank you so much. Uh, UWM Chancellor Mark Money here on the UWM Chancellor's Report. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we appreciate your time. You've been listening to The Chancellor's Report, featuring Mark Money, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. If you'd like more information, go to uwm.edu slash chancellor. <laughs>